Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event where we discuss the role of the critic. Critics occupy an uncomfortable position, often finding themselves in the firing line from all sides, too harsh, too fawning, not constructive enough. But just what is the job of a critic? What value do they add? And what makes for a good or a bad critic? International Shakespeare critic Peter Holland and New Zealand art critic Winston Curnow front up for a discussion with Rosabel Tan, editor of New Zealand online magazine The Pantograph Punch, about the place of the critic in the cultural conversation. We hope you enjoy it. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's session on the role of the critic with Peter Holland and Winston Curnow. It's a real privilege to be sharing the stage with two people who breathe real life into art and who give it a voice that it might not otherwise have. Peter Holland is a scholar of Shakespeare and theatre history and teaches at the University of Notre Dame. He's previously served as director at the Shakespeare Institute of Stratford-upon-Avon and edits a vast number of publications about Shakespeare. He's currently in New Zealand as the 2015 University of Auckland Alice Griffin Fellow in Shakespeare Studies. And if you squint hard enough, he even looks a little bit like the bard himself. <laughs> it's better when I wear a ruff. You know. <laughs> yeah. uh, Winston Curnow, for a local audience, needs very little introduction. He's one of the country's best art critics, and he's recently published a book of his collected writings called The Critic's Part. In it, it's said that his contribution to the art landscape is tied to a crucial fact. He left New Zealand and came back. As well as being a critic, he's also published five collections of poetry, which he did while teaching English at the University of Auckland, and is also a curator. To start off with, I thought I'd pose a very basic question, which is, what should good criticism achieve? And are we seeing that in New Zealand, in the States, in the UK, anywhere? Go on, you start. <laughs> <laughs> Me start. <laughs> uh, what should good criticism achieve? Mm. Um, well, hmm. the critic is sort of in between uh, the author um, the artist uh, and her or his audience. So uh, they should be a, a powerful mediating uh, voice. Um, but I think also uh, that implies a certain power, which um, I also want to say what I like to say to students when I was a teacher of literature, that uh, my job is to do myself out of a job so that anything I have to say in between the writer and you um, is something that you can readily internalize and make use of. Um, so it's that in-between figure that the, the critic um, stands for, uh, and they uh, have to be good at that, do a good job of that. Now, whether that's happening in New Zealand or in the United States and so on uh, has to do with all the other contributing factors over which the critic actually has very little control. 
um, where, where do you find this mediator? Well, uh, in the classroom, but that's not really all of it by any means. In the newspaper, well, newspapers are disappearing on us. Um, uh, in blogs, where, you know, those are things that critics don't have a, uh, a say in. Um, other people in the culture have a say in that. But they concern the critic and they concern you. Um, what are the opportunities for the critic to do a good job of um, what we want them to do? I, I think you're right, and it's that sense of mediation which seems to me to be crucial, combined mm -hmm. with where, where is the event happening. So mm -hmm. one of the things that, that I quite often find myself doing is, is writing program notes for theatre mm -hmm. productions. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody I know, often an ex-student, says, you know, I'm doing a production of King Lear, I'd like you to write the program note, and you get, you know, if you're lucky, you get about 1,200 words and as mm -hmm. much as that. And I realise that, that my if you like, professional academic writing, the stuff I write to other scholars, is read by perhaps 5% of, in numbers of the, of the audience who are going to read the programme note. Mm. And I think there's a huge responsibility at that point to mm. show people not only, hey, look, there's this play called King Lear and I can mm. tell you something about it, but something that is in tune with and understanding what the production does. Mm. So it, it, for me, I mean, very often, uh, if it's a company I don't know well, they'll say, you know, would you write it? And I'll say, but, but I need to know what mm. the production's like. Mm. Why? Well, I can't write it otherwise. I can't act as your voice in the program unless mm. I'm making that connection. And I think one of the things that, that good criticism does is seek above all to understand the object it's discussing, be it in a sense mm. like writing a program note or writing mm. a review or whatever, mm. before it starts to get involved in value judgment. Mm. One of mm. the things that I, I'm proudest of is moments when somebody, in a, you know, an actor or a director will mm. say, you know, when, when you wrote that review of the, or did a radio piece mm. or whatever on this mm. production, you really understood what we were aiming at. Mm. And mm. That's, that's, a, that's a very demanding thing to do. Mm. It's, it's often not easy. It's easier to mm. go in with all your preconceptions mm. and just say, mm. well, I mean, they're obviously mm. doing rubbish. I don't get it. I mean, what's mm. the point, you know? Mm. Um, to be open to the object, to be open to the artwork, mm. and then to, to start mm. to see how you might mm. mediate it, that's the toughest bit of the assignment. One of the, thing, one of the things that um, I remember from the best, one of the best teachers I ever had, and it stuck with me... Uh, was, and it was a startling thing to say, he said the, to me that the function of criticism was to postpone value judgment. That's very wise. And, and I thought that, that, that is a really interesting thing to say. I mean, it's not not to make value judgment, but to put it off hmm. uh, as long as possible. Because once you've made a judgment, you've sort of closed the discussion. That's yes. the end of it. That things have stopped. And you sort of can't talk about it anymore. So that the longer it, you postpone value judgment, the more you're finding out about the object itself. And then the value judgment is kind of implicit. Yes. You know, I mean, it's, you've said it all. So there's something cheap at that level about the value judgment yeah. that I think as a critic, I think um, I'm not all that interested in. I'm actually most... In, I, I don't enjoy and have very seldom ever written a negative review 
of anything that I've written about. I really seek the privilege to write as much as possible about what I admire the most. Yeah. And, and what that produces, uh, that postponement, is, is a job to, of, of setting out what's there. Mm. And now, mm. in, in one sense, when, when you're writing about an exhibition, mm. um, the artworks will, so will be there beyond, as it were, the exhibition. They, they have a kind of yeah. quasi-permanence. Mm. When you're reviewing a theatre production, yes. one part of what is always in the back of my mind yes. is a kind of, it sounds arrogant almost, but yes. I have a duty to, to record for history. Yes. Um, I mean, I go back to mm. the great reviewers in the 19th century and the early 20th mm. century, uh, and when I read, you know, Shaw, George Bernard Shaw reviewing London Theatre, or Max Beerbohm, or Henry James, uh, mm. uh, uh, what they do above all so brilliantly is they describe the event. Mm. Uh, and I find when, when uh, I read so many reviewers now, and some of it is, is a space issue, I haven't got mm. much room, you know, I haven't got much mm. time, um, they don't describe but I want to know that mm. moment that is mm -hmm. exciting. Mm. Mm. And I guess that raises an interesting question mm. about who criticism is for. Who are yes. you writing mm. criticism for? Mm. Is it for history? Is it for mm. someone who's interested in buying a book? Or is it someone else? Or is it for the critic? Or is it for the critic? You know, we could start sure. at that end, for example. We started <laughs> at, you know, mediating and for the audience and, and actually for history. But one of the things I think for a critic is that it must be for just a critic. You know, you're all right, you're a model viewer. You should regard yourself as an exemplary viewer um, of the work or a reader. Um, but there's something selfish about it and it drives you and means you have an appetite for writing yourself. And it's that part of you that... Uh, has a sense of affinity with the work itself. There's a buried artist, artist uh, writer in you. Um, so, um, for example, um, so I, I have more these days than I used to do with art collectors because we have more in New Zealand. Um, the, and um, I find that art art collectors actually not very interested in art criticism. Um, and I wonder why that is. Um, and it bothers me at one level, but because it bothers me, I think, because we're in competition. Um, because I want to possess the artwork myself by writing about it. They don't have to worry about that. They just pay up and, and, and take the work home. Um, so there is that element in it that the, um, the, the, the really dedicated critic is one that's full of desire for the work um, in that sense. Um, and part of it, and, and, and again, it's a difference, I think, between writing uh, art criticism mm. and theatre criticism. Yes. Uh, part of my, my job I always see as, a, as an act of memory for myself. Yes. I mean, we all know that the experience of going to the theatre is, yes, is about yes. forgetting, not, not remembering. Yes. yes, you come out and yes. you think, I can't remember much about what I saw. I know, I know it was great yes. and I had yes. a wonderful yes. time and I, I, you know, it was yes. emotionally draining and intellectually yes. demanding. And then you try and think of the details yes. and they're not there. But when I've had to write the mm. review, mm. it makes me watch with a different act of memory. Mm. 
and it's partly because there I am in the dark scribbling away, uh, so that there, there are kind of, there's a curious mm. kind of mess on these notes that I can't quite read afterwards. Mm. I never bought one of those pens which has a little light attached, so, so often I've written one word yes. over another, and it's a bit like deciphering a mm. medieval manuscript, you know, what, what is that word which, which has another word on top of it? It's a palimpsest. But, but uh, and, and I'll read it, and there may be three words, you know, kind of light change here, and I think, yes, there was something about yeah. that moment mm. that made me want mm. to remember it. Mm. And I think that, that one of the things that we all get in, mm. in, in so many circumstances is a kind of sensory overload. You know, yeah. you, you must get this, but I mean, mm. I find yeah. so often when I'm at an art exhibit that, mm. that after a while, mm. I can't look at anything else. Mm. Uh, and I may be at a very mm. great museum mm. and, a, mm. and there are hundreds mm. of works that I would mm. like to see. Mm. But if I go and look at all of them, mm. they're just going to flash past my, mm. my eyes mm. and they're not going to stay with me. Mm. So part of the job of the critic mm. is for him or herself, but also for, for, for the readers, listeners, mm. the people who are going to connect through that person, is to conjure up what it is that is worth remembering. Now, yes, in a sense, yes, that's almost yes. a value judgment, but yes. it's, not, it's yes. not stated as value judgment yes. uh, because it's not saying this was a great moment. It's saying this was a moment. Mm. This is, I mean, this is the odd thing, isn't it, about plays. They don't exist. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as a play. It doesn't exist. Um, and it just exists in the performances of it. Um, and even those exist in the recording of yes. the performances of it. The same thing is true of a symphony orchestra. Yep. You know, it does, those things don't exist. And I th there you get a sort of real comparison between the materiality of a painting or mm -hmm. a sculpture and the immateriality. And those that make the, th the critical act very different. At it one is level, totally but, different. Yeah. But, but it's also one of the things that can be uh, true of the art object mm. as well. Mm. Um, I, I, I have never forgotten the experience of first seeing Picasso's Guernica mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in Madrid. Um, it must now be you know, about 35 years mm. ago. Uh, because though the image was perfectly mm. familiar to mm. me, nobody had ever told me how big it is. Right, yes. uh, and and of course, you know, I'd seen it in in, in books, yes. uh, on postage stamps, yes. you know, that kind of yes. thing. I had never seen anything that had shown me the scale, mm. and I remember going mm. through a corridor mm. and turning into mm. the big hall in mm. which it was, and there it was at one mm. end. And of course, mm. it filled a vast yes. wall, yeah. and I was blown away, yeah. because scale can't mm. be transmitted. Mm. And I find the same mm. thing with, you know, we, nowadays I can buy DVDs of mm. productions yes. I've seen, uh, ones that have been broadcast mm. live mm. from the National Theatre yes. or the Globe or wherever, mm. uh, or the Royal Shakespeare mm. Company, and I watch the production live, and I watch the DVD, mm. and all I get is mismatch. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that peculiar quality that is mm -hmm. liveness mm -hmm. has gone yes. because it's been fixed by recording. Yes. Um, it's, it's like with, with a classical concert when yeah. you know, the, the, the concert is issued on CD later yeah. and you listen to it and you think, but that's not, that's not what it no. sounded like. No. That's not what it did. And it's now become fixed as another mm. kind of object. Mm. And I think that, that that is that encounter with art. It's what Walter mm. Benjamin wrote mm. about as the kind of mm. charisma of, mm. of, the, of the presence of the art mm. object. Mm. That, that that can only happen in the mm. moment. You can't repeat it. Mm. You can't recapture mm. it. And it's, of course, 
you know, because you've changed in the mm. interim, but also mm. when you remediate it, when you change its medium, mm. the object is no longer there in the same way. Mm. Theatre is made to be live. It's not mm. made to be filmed. Mm. That it is filmed is great because at least mm. we have a fragment of it, mm. but all we're getting is that fragment. And so I guess we're saying that the mm. critic has a kind of responsibility or has acts as the ideal memory of an audience member. Um, I wonder if we want to make a distinction between reviews and criticism. Mm. Uh, do you make a distinction between the two? And if so, what? I do sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's about when I'm doing it, if you see what I mean. Um, uh, uh, if I'm doing... Uh, you know, I used to do a lot of, of uh, reviewing of, of theatre performances mm. for, for BBC Radio 3 and, and, and I'd come out of the theatre and straight mm. into a studio and, and do mm. a four-minute item mm. immediately and there's no time for thinking it through at great length. Mm. And then there's another kind of writing in which I'm, there's, you know, there's me in the blank screen and I know I'm going to write something mm. and it may be that I have to write it by tomorrow or more often by next week. And that's giving a different kind of consideration to it. And sometimes uh, I'm writing it as part of an academic article, if you like. It's another part of criticism in which there is not the same degree of urgency. I mean, there's always an urgency because I miss somebody's deadline. Uh, you know, please, would you send your article now? Um, but, but even so, it's not about doing it with that same sense of I've got to have it done immediately. It was a friend who was the uh, television critic uh, for, for the Observer newspaper in London for some time. Uh, that was his evening job. His daytime job was as a lecturer in computing systems. Um, and he would write his piece. It, was, it had to be sent in uh, at, at 11.45 on the Thursday morning to, to hit the Sunday papers. And he would start writing at 10.30. And he couldn't start writing at 10 o'clock, and he couldn't start writing at 9.30. He had to start at 10.30. And there was a famous piece which ended by his saying, uh, uh, I've got to stop now because I've just seen a raccoon go past my window. Uh, and I, I can't do anything else until I discover. And that was his deadline. Um, now, that, that's urgency. Yeah. And I have deep respect for people whose entire professional work as, as, as theatre reviewers, television mm. reviewers, whatever, is, mm. is controlled by that urgency. How do they mm. write so well, so fast? Mm. There's great versatility as um, uh, some critics have mm. it. Um, yeah. There's also there's a great range of um, requirements of the critic. Um, if you start there and... Um, Add the different kinds of um, kinds of critical response that um, that we're talking about. Um, when I started out writing criticism in New Zealand, um, uh, there were own, there were all you could do was write reviews. So if you look at it historically in that way. Um, uh, Everybody who was a critic was a reviewer, and mm -hmm. every reviewer was a critic, and that was the way it was. Um, so when I um, uh, went on being a, a critic, uh, my aim was to get away from reviewing um, whenever I had the opportunity. And this, again, de depended on what the culture provided by way of opportunity. So if you wanted to postpone the value judgment, could you postpone it for uh, a thousand words, 
2,000 words, 5,000 words. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually marked it off. When I published uh, an essay um, about art that was 5,000 words long, um, I'd done something that nobody else in New Zealand had done. You know, I'm, I may be correctable on this, but I'm just posing it as... Yeah. Uh, and I had it in my head to do that. I've written 10,000 words on an artist. Um, and each time I wrote something longer, I felt I had achieved a goal. Yeah. Um, so there's that also that. I, but, but like Peter, I, I admire the, the talent to, to produce something fast and, and to deadline. Not only to deadline, but also to do something good uh, in a short period of time. I grew My father used to write poems to deadlines um, when he, he, he had a pseudonym that he wrote under called Wim Wham, which... Um, <laughs> Uh, he produced a, a, a comic poem for the Christchurch Press and for the New Zealand Herald, and he wrote it on, I think, Thursday mornings. Um, and he, he always produced it. Um, he wrote it to deadline. He also would set himself, um, you know, decide on the meter, the, you know, the type of stanza that he would use, and so on. And, um, and th that was a real skill. Um, and... So that was always going on in, in, uh, when I was young. But you know what part of it is, and, and, it, and it's something that I think we're both exemplars of, uh, that is that, that um, neither of us were trained to do this kind of writing. No. Um, we, but has we, anybody trained to do this well, kind of writing? Well, that's, that's the point. Mm. Uh, you know, I got interested in the whole kind of history of theatre reviewing, and I started to look for books mm. analysing what yes. a theatre reviewer does. There are very, very, very few. Mm. Uh, there's one or two that are kind of a bit like college textbooks, because you can in a journalism course, as it were, take a course in theatre reviewing. Um, uh, but, but there's not much. Now, in, in other cultures, there has, have been moments at which critics are trained. Uh, I remember being in, in, in Russia in 1989, just at the end of Sovietism, and, and, and at that stage, if you wanted to be a professional theatre reviewer, you went to drama school. And you were taught, you took courses in acting and directing and lighting, as well as courses in writing and so on. And so you understood how theatre was made. And that put you in a very different position as a reviewer. Mm. Um, th there was a point where the Royal Shakespeare Company, as an, as an experiment, invited a couple of professional theatre critics to direct a studio production. Not, not for a long run, just, just as a kind of one-off. Mm. And, and, of course, um, uh, Michael Billington from The Guardian newspaper, who's been reviewing theatre in the UK for now 50 years or so, uh, uh, was one of them. And he said you know, he had no idea, because he'd never really been in the rehearsal room, what was involved in mm. directing a play. Now, now, in a sense, that's shocking, isn't mm. it? You're, you're, you're looking at something that is mm. the result of a particular process of work mm. and you have no idea about the process. Mm. I mean, when, when you look at an artwork, mm. you know something mm. about mm. the process of the artist. You know mm. how he or she has used different materials mm. and worked with them to mm. produce it. Well, that's what theatre workers do. And yet, most reviewers 
frankly, they come out of English degrees in college and mm. they go, want a job and they write well and they're witty mm. and they're sharp and they're young and they're aggressive and they, 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 they can do it. Um, and, and they may do it very, very well, mm. but it doesn't mean they understand what, what has made it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the mm-hmm. job, mm-hmm. understanding what, what precedes the artwork, mm-hmm. what, what leads to mm-hmm. the artwork, not just, oh, I'm a consumer, mm-hmm. I look at finished product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the things there, again, it points up the differences in the art, different art forms, doesn't it? Because if you're a writer and you're writing about a book, well, then the leap to knowing what went into yep. writing a book... Is less of a, you know, because you're a writer yourself as a reviewer, is less great than knowing about what goes on in a rehearsal or in an artist's studio where something quite other is happening. Um, and, uh, and it has nothing to do with, um, well, in, in, a, in a rehearsal would have something to do with words, but the context for words would be utterly different. Uh, whereas in music or in uh, painting, there's no words at all. Um, so those um, those distinctions are important, aren't they, in terms yeah. of your access to the process. Um, what is the nature of the process and what as a critic need you have? An, be, what equipment do you need? Um, so for, for me, in terms of it's the visual and the written, um, which is the differences and moving from one to the other um, back and forth all the time from something seen to something verbal um, is at the heart of um, uh, doing criticism and there's something problematic there always it's a translation exercise Um, and as it is from the rehearsal to the Absolutely. review. It's a translation, a particular kind of translation that has to take place, don't you think? Absolutely. And one of the things that, that um, theatre people talk about all the time is, is, is about that kind of show that was mm. at its very best before mm. it ever got on the stage. Yes. That, it, that yes. its most yes. wonderful yes. moment was in yes. the rehearsal room. Yes. Um, yeah. And that there's a famous example of somebody trying mm. to, to maintain that. Mm. When, when uh, Sir John Gielgud was directing mm. Richard Burtoner's mm. Hamlet, mm. Uh, a famous production in the mm. 1960s mm. Uh, in, in, in America, uh, he was so concerned to kind of keep the excitement mm. of the rehearsal room that, first of all, he wanted a kind of bare stage, and then everybody was mm. going to wear mm. rehearsal clothes, mm. and, and, and that was going to be great. And then, of course, what happens is there's a costume designer who designs rehearsal clothes. Well, as soon as you've got that, you might just as well be wearing doublet hose because you've made the same kind of transition and as hard as they tried to Mm. keep that immediacy Mm. of of the rehearsal room Mm. into the performance Mm. it's faked up because it's it's now turned into that moment of performance Mm. and that idea of having all that training to become a critic is Mm. so crucial and at the same time so impractical because to go through years and years of theatre training and then to make $50 a week being a theatre critic isn't... Some of them make a little more than well, that. Well, yeah. <laughs> that there is that sense that mainstream criticism, as in criticism for mainstream publications, is slowly decaying. We're seeing budget cuts, inch cuts, um, and we're seeing at the same time a rise of writing critically or you know, criticism being written online. I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about that and whether you think 
that has changed what criticism does now? I, w I mean, we're in the middle of a process here. It doesn't just involve criticism, but of the, um, of the, of the whole subject of which this, this little session is a part. Uh, and there's a limit to what we can predict will happen. But it's... Uh, um, so I, I'm not sure um, where those kinds of changes as the result of digital, the, the digital, um, uh, where they're going to lead us. But they lead to, they lead immediately to, I mean, you're referring to some impoverishment um, of the, the situation of criticism. Um, and, um, but uh, it, it, it won't necessarily stay that way. Um, but it's, it, it may be a very difficult transition to go through um, in, in which one has to weather the impoverishment and wait for the kind of structures that the, you, the audience, you, um, you the market, um, will make possible, which uh, will uh, allow for another kind of enrichment to replace uh, what we take for granted as this, uh, the places where we find the most enriching form of discourse around the arts. But, um, yes, I think there used to be uh, moments of, of high panic, particularly in the newspaper industry. And I remember one of the very best London theatre critics being sacked by his newspaper mm. uh, on the grounds that he was too old and therefore couldn't write for the demographic that they were trying to reach. Mm -hmm. No matter that he had had mm. you know, 30 years of writing brilliantly mm. about theatre. I think he was mm. one of the very best theatre critics. I'm going to leave him nameless. Because not, to, not, not because of him, but uh, you know, um, I don't want to be accused of insulting his former employers. Um, but that was a panic about who's going to read it and what's it for, mm. uh, you say, about what critics earn. I remember the, the friends when they, they were writing... Um, the, one, one was writing the television column for, for the Sunday Times in London and the other the theatre column. The person for the television column was paid more than three times as much mm. because people buy newspapers to read the TV reviews much more often than they buy newspapers to read the theatre reviews. That's the simple economics of the process. But now we have an extraordinary transformation. Um, I, I think in some respects it might be a kind of throwback. I think of moments when mm. uh, the intellectual culture in a community was a small group of people mm. who would meet regularly, I mean, in, in, in as it were, London coffee houses in the 18th century, mm. Uh, mm. having uh, absorbed all the mm. new artworks mm. of the mm. week. They would be at the theatre and at mm. the new art exhibit mm. and so on, and they would sit around and discuss mm. it. In, in a curious way, what the web makes possible is the creation of new communities with that kind of dialogue. Uh, for me now, some of the mm. very best theatre mm. reviewing is, is on theatre blogs. Mm. Uh, people who, who I have come to respect deeply for the quality and mm. intelligence of mm. their writing, which mm. they do for no pay but because they want to do it. At the same time, some of the very worst reviewing mm. I ever read is, is out there on the, in the blogosphere, mm. precisely because we, we have this curious change, and it's one mm. of the things that the web makes possible. It used to be filter, then publish. Only the very best stuff mm. gets published. Mm. Now we have publish then filter. Mm. It's not my dictum, mm. and I'm, mm. I'm sorry, I don't remember the, the, the name of the person who's mm. been writing about the internet who, who coined it as, a, as an idea. But of course now anybody mm. can post anything mm. 
and we have to do the filtering mm. to find what's worth reading. Mm. Uh, so that's a, a very different phenomenon. But what there is is a kind of participatory process. And very often I find that when I'm reading a theatre review for a production, mm. I'm also fascinated not only by the quality of the review, mm. but by the comments thread below it. Mm. Yes, where mm. readers of a major newspaper mm. are putting down their response. They're saying, yeah, I saw it, but actually mm. I don't agree that's what, what it's mm. like, or how great to hear that this mm. actor is back to form, or whatever it may be. And they are making public their sharing of being in the community. And actually I find that rather reassuring. Um, one of the things about writing reviews is you don't normally get much feedback. No. You, you write it, it's published. Mm. Um, you may get an angry note from someone. Uh, a friend mm. may say, mm. I read your piece and I really liked it. Mm. That's about it. Mm. But they're not really dialoguing with you. Mm. And now the web makes possible a completely different kind of amateur dialogue. And, mm. and by amateur, I don't mean that it's non-professional. I mean that it's out of love. I mean, that, that's what the word, after all, amateur mm. means. It's somebody who, who, who loves it. And the people who blog do it out of love. Mm. They don't do it out of hatred or, or anger or irritation. They do it because they want to share and self-publicize. Of course, we're in the selfie culture. Uh, they want to self-publicize their own intelligent reading of the event. That act mm. you're describing mm. of turning mm. the event into words. Mm. And then mm. other people write back. Mm. And then somebody else writes mm. back to that. And mm. I find that wonderful. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm pleased now to be in a, in a space of sharing, mm. not in a mm. space in which I, from on high, make mm. a pronouncement and mm. you peasants are going to understand mm. it and appreciate it. You know, mm. yeah. that, that, I'm afraid, is now what I find the traditional model to, to reek of, uh, whereas now I, uh, I, I, I'm called to account. So the, the mediating that we started with, mm. that mediating function, is maybe an accumulation of voices rather yes. than a single authoritative voice. So mm. simply by the quantity um, of responses uh, that are available to you, because before the newspaper only had one reviewer. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Um, now the organ of uh, transmission uh, has many reviewers, and together um, they uh, mediate in a quite different way, but um, it, it could well be just as well. And so it's that idea, too, of the conversation continuing on and on, and that yes, idea that yes. the value judgment gets delayed yes, further and further yes. as well. Can be a, can be a sort of... But, but it's also a sharing process, a sharing. isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. um, uh, I nearly always go to the theatre with my wife. We'd sort of see the same show on the same night, you know, but, but there's just the two of us. We talk about it in the car on the way home or whatever. I love those moments when I take a class to a production because mm. suddenly there's you know, 15, 20, 30 mm. different views mm. in the room and there's, there's mm. all that range mm. of experiences mm. that is being shared in, mm. in the discussion of the event. Mm. Well, and the blog does it with thousands. But yeah. we might, yeah, we, Sorry. We, we, not at all, but I, I, um, I, you know, let, let's sort of... Uh, I mean, we're sort of down on value judgment, but... It might be good to just unpack our, this, the value judgment thing. Um, um, so one of the things that value to me is the ability of something I read to shock me, to surprise me, to 
um, make me think twice. Um, that it, it, it's not about um, uh, establishing a hierarchy. No. It's, it's, it's about, and I think we have come back again and again to talking about the critic is um, speaking to an experience of something read, something witnessed, something seen. And that's the, it's the experience that matters, not the writing down of it, and nor the conclusion of it, but the quality of that experience is what we're after. Um, so I think, I think value in that sense is about something special. So the complication in sharing um, is that you reinforce one another's opinions um, mm -hmm. and, and what you might lose then, what you might expect of the single critic uh, that's really valuable is the critic's ability to surprise you, point at something new or something you've overlooked, or oh, I didn't see it that way at all. How could that possibly be how you react to it? So, um, and that, my, feel my feeling is that that, we rely on that to get at some of the things that are most important about the work of art. Mm. You know, what makes the work of art endure and unforgettable is what is mysterious, what is surprising, what is shocking, what is disturbing, what is thrilling, um, and, and so on. And that's something special. And I don't think it necessarily comes out of sharing. It might. Um, when you think, oh, I, they thought differently from me. But whatever what we want, what we want, whether it's shared or brought down from on high or by someone who was good at um, uh, looking at something or reading something, it should thrill, shock, surprise, make a difference. And I think the value of the critic's judgment is to do with that, with that has been communicated to us. It, it's, it's the line in King Lear, see better, Lear, yes, that, that, that yes, Kent says yes, to, to, to Lear yes. at, the, at the beginning. You know, my job is to make, help other people see better. Yes. And, and I can only yes. help other people see better by seeing better myself. Exactly. So my responsibility is to see as clearly as I can, as yes. complexly and intelligently yes. as yes. I can, and then somebody may look at that object yes. and see it better as yes. a result. Mm. And by object, I can mean a production, yes. a film, whatever. Yeah. And on that note, thinking about art that shocks and mm. unnerves and transforms, you saw a lot of that in Billy Apple, and you worked very closely with him to the point where he nominated you as his official critical spokesperson, you um, managed his tour, you were his PR agent. Your writing essentially is now part of his work, but I wondered whether through that process of working so closely with him, you felt your role as a critic specifically was ever compromised in some way or called into question? Uh, well, I think there is, a, there is an idea about criticism that, that the critic should... Um, um, that there should be something objective about the critic's uh, view of uh, the work. Um, that... Um, um, I, don't, I don't know that we all think that, or I don't think that everyone always thinks that about 
criticism because I think we're in talking about this experience of the work, we're talking about something subjective. Mm. So there are these mm. two things. The authority of judgment may appeal to an idea of objectivity, but the authority of the value of the experience that I've talked about uh, will be vouched for by the subjectivity of the response. So those are the two sides of it. Um, what were, the example that you had there was of an extreme case of, of, of the critic over-identifying with, um, uh, with the artist or the artwork. Um, and in my case, utterly compromising himself. Um, so, um, uh, so my judgments about Billy Apple are to be taken totally with a grain of salt and disregarded. I have no, I must say I have no, the saving grace is that I have no pecuniary interest in Apple's work. I have a purely intellectual interest in it, in it. And, uh, but I, it's an utterly compromised position. Um, I, I, I accept that. Um, but subjective, objective, well, you know, wh where's the point of difference? I, I, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been reading your, your writing about Billy Apple, and he was at the show yesterday at, mm. at, at the gallery, which is stunningly good. Please do catch it if you haven't yet been. Yes, it's um, wonderful. It, it's, it's a wonderful. really wonderful show. <laughs> um, yeah. No pecuniary interest, you notice. Yeah, um, <laughs> you, may, you may be right that in, that in one sense you might be compromised, but mm. there's never a moment of a lack of integrity. In other words, you're not obscuring your engagement. It's, it's all absolutely open and above board. Yes. Here yes. I am. I yes. mean, you know, yes. I, as I was walking yes. uh, here, to here this afternoon, mm -hmm. we, I walked past the art gallery, and there is uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the slogan, and it's ascribed to Billy Apple and Wesson Kerner. And, and, and the two of you are, are co-authors, as it were, of, 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 of what the, the show is. That, that, that seems to me to be an unproblematic form of compromise. Um, uh, the difficulty is when something is hidden. And I think uh, I'm, you're right. Criticism is always coming from the self. Mm. It's not an objective statement. It's mm. not measurable. It doesn't have statistics mm. attached mm. to it. It's not that you can count it and, mm. and, or feed it into a mm. machine to tell you whether you like something mm. or not. It comes from the peculiar, complex mm. working of your own brain and emotion. Mm. And sometimes I've seen shows on a day when I'm not really kind of tuned in for that mm. work and I shouldn't mm. be writing about it but I've got to because I'm, I'm not in, in mm. sync with it or whatever. Mm. That's, that's just unfortunate. Mm. I think my obligation is then to say, unfortunately I'd had a bad day, you know, and, and, and I mm. don't think I was fair to mm. this show. I have for now about two decades uh, had the, the awful shame of having given a bad review to a book because I was out of sympathy with it, and it was a damn good book, and I should have given it a much better review. And, I, and the author is a friend, and I, and I have explained to him, you know, and apologized, and he's very, been very gracious. Um, uh, but there is that moment mm. when you're just, you're, mm. you're, you, you know you shouldn't mm. do the act of criticism, mm. as it were, mm. because it's not the work's fault, mm. it's your fault. Mm. You're not doing mm -hmm. it properly. Mm. And at that point, that's the worst kind of compromised mm. position because that's the failure of integrity. Mm. That's the failure of responsibility mm. and professionalism. Mm. Did you ever think about rewriting that review? 
Well, I've never had to reprint it, thank goodness, and it's kind of lost in the files now. Um, uh, and having done the crucial act of groveling apology to, to, to the author, yeah. um, uh, I, that, that's as far as I think I can go. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to say publicly what the book was that I misreviewed. Uh, not, not, no, it was a, an academic work. I'm not sure many people here would care about reading it. But, but there are moments when you know you've got it wrong. And you look back and you think, I didn't understand what this was doing. Um, and there are many great artworks uh, that it takes time to come to appreciate. Uh, I have to say that, that one of the, the Shakespeare films I like most, uh, Peter Greenaway's film, Prospero Books, a version of The Tempest, it took me the third viewing before I realized how brilliant it was. The first couple of times, ah, this is okay, it's a bit self-indulgent. Over repeated viewings, it started to get to me. Artworks, we, we can go back to and see them again and again. Theatre productions, we hardly ever see more than once. Films, we choose whether we encounter again. And, and it, sometimes the film grows on you. And you learn, this wasn't just slightly good. This was just bloody fantastic. And, 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 and you, you, you end up being slightly ashamed you didn't get it right the first time. But that's all right. That's all right. Well, I guess the main takeaway is that you should take every critic with a grain of salt then. And yeah, thank you, Peter and Weston. Thank you. Robert. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.